Good morning, Valley Forge, King of Prussia and the greater Philadelphia area. This is We the People, the Constitution Matters, coming to you over the freedom airways of WFYL. I'm your host, Pastor David Whitney, and this fine Friday morning, my two wonderful collaborators this morning, Phil Duffy, our constitutional instructor, and Mike Jeremita, who we call our warrior in the courtroom as he defends the God-given right to keep and bear arms. And by the way, Mike has an excellent show just before ours at 7 a.m. on Friday mornings. Mike G. in the morning, The Law Matters. And in our series here, we're doing the series we're calling The Decent Dozen. That is a decent 12 Supreme Court cases. Uh, we've contrasted this, of course, preceding this with the Dirty Dozen, kind of the worst of the worst Supreme Court cases. But we're looking at cases that illustrate the proper functioning of the Supreme Court in defending our Constitution, standing up for the proper interpretation as well as the proper application uh, of the Constitution. We need to understand our founders wrestled with the problem of how to create a government strong enough to accomplish the job which we, the people, hired that government to do, but on the other hand, not so tyrannical or, or strong that it would override and, and uh, uh, overrun our God-given rights. And the, the essence was they knew that all men are sinners, as Scripture clearly states, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And therefore, you cannot trust any human being, even the best of human beings, cannot be trusted with unchecked powers. And so there's basically five methods that our founders, five-fold formula for doing that. At first was limited, delegated, enumerated powers given by the Constitution to the, the government we were creating. Secondly, the vertical division of powers, one we often don't think of, that is between uh, local government, state government, and federal government, each level of government being a check against one another. And then, of course, the horizontal separation of powers, which we often think of when we talk about checks and balances. You know, have the legislative branch, the executive, and the judicial, each serving as a check against one another. And so those checks and balances being the fourth way and the fifth that reserved individual rights are uh, are secured by the Ninth and the Tenth Amendment. Well, that horizontal separation of powers, particularly that between the legislative, executive, and judicial at the federal level, is the focus of the decent dozen case we're going to look at today in United States v. Nixon back in 1974. Bill, why don't you bring us your thoughts on United States v. Nixon? Well, those over 60 should remember this court case because it brought down the administration of Richard Nixon after Watergate. For those younger, it is probably just another part of an American history course. Wikipedia summarizes the case in this manner. United States versus Nixon was a landmark United States Supreme Court case that resulted in a unanimous decision against President Richard Nixon ordering him to deliver tape recordings and other subpoenaed materials to a federal district court. Issued on July 24, 1974, the decision was important to the late stages of the Watergate scandal, when there was an ongoing impeachment process against Richard Nixon. United States versus Nixon is considered a crucial precedent limiting the power of any U.S. president to claim executive privilege. Wikipedia defines executive privilege as the right of the President of the United States and other members of the executive branch to maintain confidential communication under certain circumstances within the executive branch and to resist some subpoenas and other oversight by the legislative and judicial branches of government in pursuit of particular information or personnel 
relating to those confidential communications. The right comes into effect when revealing information would impair governmental functions. Neither executive privilege nor the oversight power of Congress is explicitly mentioned in the United States Constitution. However, the Supreme Court of the United States has ruled that executive privilege and congressional oversight each are a consequence of the uh, doctrine of the separation of powers derived from the supremacy of each branch in its own area of constitutional activity. The Supreme Court confirmed the legitimacy of this doctrine in United States versus Nixon in the context of a subpoena emanating from the judiciary instead of emanating from Congress. The court held that there is a qualified privilege which once re- invoked creates a presumption of privilege and the party seeking the documents must then make a sufficient showing that the presidential material is essential to the justice of the case. Chief Justice Warren Burger further stated that executive privilege would most effectively apply when the oversight of the executive would impair that branch's national security concerns. Regarding requests from Congress instead of from the courts for executive branch information, as of a 2014 study by the Congressional Research Service, only two federal court cases had addressed the merits of executive privilege in such a context and neither of those cases reached the Supreme Court. The concept of confidentiality is not unique to government, but it's inherent to the private sector as well. The difference is that its implementation in the latter is quite hierarchical. While management may conduct its operations on a day-to-day basis under the concept of confidentiality, accountability to the board of directors as representatives of the shareholders trumps confidentiality. Historically, monarchies operated in the same manner, but the concept of representative government replaced that with the concept of separation of powers, which is associated with Montesquieu. Theoretically, the citizens are the shareholders in government, and they designate their agents in representative bodies, such as state legislatures and the federal uh, Congress. That analogy breaks down, however, when we realize that in the private sector, shareholders invest in firms with the expectation of a financial return. They can either replace the members of the board of directors if they are unhappy with their oversight of the management, which is a relatively difficult process, or they can sell their shares in a firm and invest in another. The system is voluntary and quite democratic, not so with government. And this is seen most clearly with governments most remote from the people, such as our own federal government. The typical citizen does not invest in government although that clearly happens with special interests, which leads to corruption. The fundamental foundation of government is coercion. Instead of a return on investment, there is taxation, including the hidden taxation of inflation. And that taxation creates the opportunity for the agents of the people to establish their own separate interests from the people they are supposed to represent. Montesquieu recognized this tendency in the spirit of laws, recommending that three branches of government be established, the legislative, executive, and judicial branches of government. Each would jealously defend its delegated powers against the natural encroachments of the others. Representative government was not designed to optimize government operations through cooperation. Instead, it was designed to balance cooperation among the branches with suspicion of the other branches in order to assure that government did not operate in response to its own interests, but in the interests of the people. But is that really what United States versus Nixon is about? 
The Wikipedia article on executive privilege uh, emphasizes this. The Supreme Court confirmed the legitimacy of this doctrine in the United States versus Nixon in the context of a subpoena emanating from the judiciary instead of emanating from Congress. It seems there is a greater concern here about extending the powers of the judiciary in the United States versus Nixon than in providing transparency of executive action to the representatives of the people, Congress. Taken to the extreme, this doctrine would practically eliminate any congressional inquiry of executive action. However, that conflicts with one of the purposes of the separation of powers, which is a kind of division of labor between the branches of government. According to that view, the members of Congress represent the will of the people. Their role is to create laws within the boundaries of the Constitution that represent that will. The role of the executive branch is to execute those laws with the resources it has been granted in the Constitution. If either of the other branches steps outside of the boundaries of the Constitution, it is the role of the judiciary to decide that. The judiciary may also be employed to determine how the law applies in a dispute between parties where no issue of constitutionality is under consideration, assuming the court has jurisdiction. Let's return to that idea that executive privilege frees the executive branch from accountability to the legislative branch. That would require that all disputes be resolved by the judiciary, but that is clearly too cumbersome and discriminatory to work efficiently. It is cumbersome because history has demonstrated that seeking justice through the judicial system can take years. It is discriminatory because case-burdened judges are allowed to select the cases they will hear, at least at the level of the Supreme Court of the United States. While that might be tolerated for extreme situations, it will not work for more routine differences. If the operation of the executive is to reflect the will of the people, something more than removal by voting once every four years must work as a check on executive power. This is particularly true when members of the executive branch insist on their immunity to criticism when they invoke the concept of executive privilege. The Wikipedia article senses this conundrum with a statement. In addition to which branch of government is requesting the information, another characteristic of executive privilege is whether it involves a presidential communications privilege or instead a deliberative process privilege or some other type of privilege. The deliberative process privilege is often considered to be rooted in common law, whereas the presidential communications privilege is often considered to be rooted in separation of powers thus making the deliberative process privilege less difficult to overcome. Do you sense that this is all well beyond the abilities of even a well-informed citizen and we're going down a legal rabbit hole? Clearly, the executive branch must be responsible to the wishes of the people and their agents in Congress. Not every dispute can flow through the judiciary. There's no single answer to this challenge. If Congress is to make the laws, the executive branch must be accountable to Congress for the execution of those laws. Then there is the cost of ex executing the laws. Congress may initially allocate funds for execution, but then the executive branch must be accountable to Congress for continued funding. Part of the problem is based upon the nature of the laws passed by Congress. Congress might, for example, pass very specific legislation to describe how the census is to be performed, in contrast to a very general mission statement such as to assure the United States education is the best in the world. Many of the disputes that arise in the judicial system 
and their source is the opportunity for broad interpretation of poorly stated legislation. If we were sensing that even following these guidelines, the federal government would remain too large, too arbitrary, and too inv invasive of the liberties of its citizens, you've come to the correct conclusion. The best way to keep the horse in the barn is to keep the door shut. That means curtailing Congress's tendency to ignore the Constitution concerning limited enumerated powers. Granted that Congress is faced with the challenge of appropriately legislating when new technologies are discovered, such as a new branch of the military, the Air Force, or communications technologies such as radio, television, telephone, and the, and the Internet. Even then, existing principles suffice to limit the need for new legislation. Had the federal government remained within its constitutional boundaries, there would have been little need for new legislation. We have had 234 years, after all, to write the legislation necessary to expand on the Constitution. If members of Congress honored their oaths of office, they would have little to do today, and the average citizen would be able to monitor any legislative changes. The vast majority of congressional effort and cost today is focused instead on the creation and execution of unconstitutional legislation. Some estimates have been as high as 90% of the federal budget being allocated to unconstitutional federal activity. United States versus Nixon ignores this reality, which is reasonable. We don't want the Supreme Court of the United States offering broad opinions on the formation and operation of the federal government. We do want it to stick to the specific case. But as we assess this in other cases that come before the Supreme Court, we as citizens ought to be sensitive to the underlying forces that cause these cases to arise. In most cases, Supreme Court decisions can only make minor course direction corrections for the ship of state. That is usually not enough to avoid the rocks ahead. Let's take a look at the case background. With those thoughts as a framework, let's explore how this case arose. The first stage was straightforward according to the Wikipedia summary. The case arose out of the Watergate scandal which began during the 1972 presidential campaign between President Nixon and his Democratic challenger, Senator George McGovern of South Dakota. On June 17, 1972, about five months before the election, five men broke into Democratic National Committee headquarters located in the Watergate office building in Washington, D.C. These men were later found to have ties with the Nixon administration. Until the men involved in the Watergate break-in, codenamed the White House Plumbers, were found to have ties to the Nixon administration, this was a simple case of breaking and entering. The White House Plumbers were a secret group, uh, White House group, uh, led by G. Gordon Liddy. They were established July 24, 1971, during the presidency of Richard Nixon. Its task was to find out who was giving out classified information such as the Pentagon Papers, to the news media. The investigation widened in April 1974 when Special Prosecutor Leon Jaworski obtained a subpoena ordering Nixon to release certain tapes and papers related to specific meetings between the president and those indicted uh, by the grand jury. Those tapes and the conversations they revealed were believed to contain damaging evidence involved uh, involving the indicted men and perhaps the president himself. Wikipedia continues. 
Judge John Sirica of the U.S. District Court of the District of Columbia denied Nixon's motion and ordered the president to turn the tapes over by May 31st. Both Nixon and Jaworski appealed directly to the Supreme Court, which heard arguments on July 8th. Nixon's attorney argued the matter should not be subject to judicial resolution since the matter was a dispute within the executive branch and the branch should resolve the the dispute itself. Also, he claimed Special Prosecutor Jaworski had not proven the requested materials were absolutely necessary for the trial of the seven men. Besides, he claimed Nixon had an absolute executive privilege to protect communications between high government officials and those who advise and assist them in carrying out their duties. So let's look at the Supreme Court opinion. Wikipedia continues. The court's opinion found that the courts could indeed intervene on the matter and that special counsel Jaworski had proven a sufficient likelihood that each of the tapes contains conversations relevant to the offenses charged in the indictment. While the court acknowledged that the principle of executive privilege did exist, the court would also directly reject President Nixon's claim to an absolute unqualified presidential privilege privilege of immunity from judicial process under all circumstances. The court held that a claim of presidential privilege as to materials subpoenaed for use in a criminal trial cannot override the needs of the judicial process if that claim is based not on the ground that military or diplomatic secrets are implicated but merely on the ground of a generalized interest in confidentiality. The court delivered its opinion on July 4th, uh, July 24th, 1974. The tapes were delivered and President Nixon resigned on August 9th of that year. There's an epilogue to all of this. Nixon was succeeded by Vice President Gerald Ford. He was the first person appointed to the Vice Presidency under the terms of the 25th Amendment, describing presidential succession. The occasion had been the resignation of Spiro Agnew. Ford subsequently gained notoriety for granting a full and unconditional pardon to Richard Nixon, his predecessor, for any crimes that he might have committed against the United States as president. Cornell's Legal Information Institute defines pardon as the use of executive power that exempts the individual to whom it was given from punishment. The president's pardon power is based on Article 2 of the Constitution, which says he shall have power to grant reprieves and pardons for offenses against the United States, except in cases of impeachment. However, Nixon was not charged with offenses, so Ford's use of the presidential pardoning power remains questionable. That would have made an interesting case if a challenge had reached the Supreme Court. In any case, the voters passed judgment on Gerald Ford in November 1976, retiring him from office. Oh, thank you, Phil. And thank you for unpacking that case. And yeah, there are some very curious things like, do you know that Gerald Ford, here's here's one of your tri- trivia questions you could pass. Gerald Ford is the only man never elected as president who served as president, right? Because <laughs> the people did not return him to office there in November 1776. Uh, 1976. And uh, the other thing you point out rightly as well, he had what kind of pardoning power is it when there's, uh, you know, no charge, charge defense? against Nixon, but all of those are kind of curious uh, elements of this. But when we think about the real issue at stake here is how is the balance of power, how does the checks and balances designed by our founders, how are those supposed to work? Now, we need to remember what was very clear in our, our founders' thinking was you cannot trust anyone, anyone with unchecked power. For example, James Madison in Federalist Paper number 51 says this, 
if men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, neither external nor internal controls on government would be necessary. In framing a government which is to be administered by men over men, the great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government to control the governed and in the next place oblige it to control itself very good points made there obviously all human beings fallen and and all of them sinners none of them are angels and therefore anyone you put in the position as a trustee of the public and that's exactly what everyone in the president's office that's what everyone in the executive branch and every every congressman in the legislative branch and every uh, judge in the in the judicial branch at the all of these are trustees of the public that is we put them there to do a job for us, for we the people. But what seems to often happen, and this is again due to fallen human sinful nature, is that they begin to become self-serving. So rather than doing what's good for their constituents, for the, the people who put them into office, good for the country, they begin to do what's good for their own political career. We see this repeatedly in, uh, in, in Congress and obviously in the White House as well. So what Nixon did is, uh, actually when we look at it in hindsight there, this is absolutely foolish. The evidence is he he had nothing directly to do with the Watergate break-in. What his, his ter terrible error was is his attempt to cover it up after it had already happened. So he didn't know what these plumbers were up to, uh, but when it was exposed, he did everything in his power, it appears, to cover up that. And that's what uh, cost him the, uh, the, the, the presidency and led him to a point where he had to uh, resign. So the balance of power, however, between the legislative branch and the executive branch, the biggest check on that power that the legislative ha branch has is the impeachment. And that is the House is drawing up articles of impeachment. And when they draw up articles of impeachment, it's kind of like indictments that a grand jury would hand down. And, and then a, the pettit jury is going to hear the case and, and determine guilt or innocent, uh, innocence of each of those charges. So it's when we say a president has been impeached, which, you know, Trump was impeached twice and, you know, a we have Nixon approaching impeachment, but they actually hadn't they actually finalized the paperwork. They hadn't voted on it. So technically, Nixon was not impeached, uh, but obviously Clinton was impeached. And uh, uh, all the way back, Andrew uh, Johnson, after the war between the states, was impeached. But the impeachment power, it begins in the House that draws up the charges and it just takes 50 percent plus one in the house to say yes these charges must go to trial so the house is deciding what charges the president's going to be tried under and then the senate actually conducts the trial with the chief justice of the supreme court serving as uh, uh the judge in a sense the moderator of that trial in a sense the senate serving as the jury evaluating the evidence and determining guilt or innocence regarding each one of the charges brought against uh, that particular president and as you well know no president has ever been removed by the Senate. Not Andrew Johnson, not uh, Bill Clinton, and not Donald Trump. No one has been removed from office. Nixon actually was one who chose to resign uh, because he was uh, wisely advised that this probably not going to go well for him. If it did go to the Senate, uh, that he probably would not win because the evidence was piling up against him. So this whole case of uh, United States v. Nixon is about uh, materials 
that were being subpoenaed by the House because as they were drawing up their articles of impeachment, they were saying, okay, what is it specifically that President Nixon has done that's a violation of his oath of office, that's a violation of the trust that the people have placed in him as president, and they believe that these tapes and so on were uh, involved in that. Now, of course, the real uh, immediate uh, issue was the trial of those plumbers uh, who were being, uh, you know, going through the judicial process. But in the background, of course, was, okay, if these folks and we get the evidence on these folks and we get it that that Nixon is connected with that, then we will be able uh, to successfully uh, get articles of impeachment against Nixon and see that um, uh, he is removed by the Senate. So those are all the background issues here. And, and this is a decent case because the court does uphold. There is a claim, a proper claim to presidential privilege, uh, but not uh, a complete claim. In other words, the, the claim is limited. If there is a criminal trial, uh, that criminal trial, and the judicial process involved in that may demand that the materials that the president is claiming presidential privilege, that those materials would be required. And kind of the cutout area, they said, well, uh, it would not involve materials uh, that we were involving military secrets or uh, diplomatic secrets, things that would threaten the security of our nation as a whole. And they said that's not the case here at all with the plumbers and, and the break-in of Watergate. It, it has to do with just political interests. You know, the re-election of, uh, uh, of Nixon was being uh, sought after. And, of course, the question as to who leaked the Pentagon Papers and where that leak was coming from, all those kind of things were, were a political issue. They were not something that actually was threatening national security. So it didn't rise to a level where Nixon's claim of presidential privilege uh, could be secured. So it's a very tricky line to walk between allowing the accountability that is necessary when a president steps outside the boundaries of what his office actually uh, is, is supposed to be doing. And by the way, I think impeachment has been used too little, even though we see what was done with Trump was completely political. It had nothing to do with any reality. We know the Russian thing was all a hoax. By the way, a hoax that was paid for by Hillary Clinton, of all things. I mean, it was all a political charade. And all of our uh, you know, intelligence departments got a big black eye because they were involved in this charade that they knew was a lie. And so the FISA court issuing, uh, allowing spying and, and, and wiretapping, all of that was a charade and a lie. And I think we ought to uh, see that many of those intelligence uh, officers are fired and penalized and uh, the powers of those intel in that intelligence community needs to be extremely curtailed in light of what was done with Trump. So I think the Trump situation is is different than the other impeachments. And then, of course, Clinton, you know, with the I did not have sex with that woman. Uh, and it all depends on how you define the word is and so forth. Again, probably they were going after the wrong thing with Clinton, in my view. They should have been impeaching him on selling military secrets to China. That's right, to China for campaign contributions. The evidence is he sold them the military technology to be able to get nuclear missiles landing here in the United States. China could not do that before Bill Clinton sold it to them. He sold them the technology they needed to nuke America. Now, talk about a traitor. He should have been tried for And I think it was actually to his advantage to have the whole Monica Lewinsky thing to, to be a smokescreen for his real evil traitorous deeds that he has committed against the American people. And also, when we look at Andrew Johnson and, and his impeachment, that was a very political thing because he was trying to be easy 
on the South in Reconstruction and the Radical Republicans were trying to you know, crush the South, you might say. So again, each of these has their own, own uh, thing. But when we look at the, uh, the actions of our presidents and the, the powers that they have taken unto themselves, many people have uh, taken to calling our current presidency an imperial presidency. It has nothing to do with the boundaries established by our constitution. It flagrantly violates those again and again and again, and there is no check because the House of Representatives is unwilling to check the, the violations. I, my own representative for in the House of Representatives, I challenged him during the Obama administration at a town hall meeting if he would file articles of impeachment against Obama. And I, I listed a number of things that Obama had done and was doing that were in violation of the Constitution. He said, David, and he knew me because we actually had taught him our U.S. Constitution course. Uh, and he said, David, that wouldn't ever go anywhere. That wouldn't ever accomplish his removal from office. And so it's not worthwhile doing. I said, no, that's not, not, not what the job is about. If you see a wrong, you are to uh, uh, protest against that. Even if it doesn't ultimately accomplish the removal from office, it can be a shot across the bow that can warn that person that they are over the line. They need to step back. And so what I see in all of this is that we have a check and balance process established by our founders, but currently it is not working. And when it's even used, it's just a political bludgeon to uh, from one to another party, and it has nothing to do with actually protecting we the people from the evils being done by those who are violating our Constitution at uh, the federal level. So, United States v. Nixon, good in, in a sense because the Supreme Court uh, did see that there was some teeth in that process by which uh, the president could not claim privilege regarding all of the materials, uh, unless it was materials that really were related to uh, national uh, security. Well, Mike, what are, what are your thoughts on the uh, United States v. Nixon? Thanks, Pastor Whitney. You know, there are a ton of different legal issues in this case, and frankly, we could probably devote an entire episode to each of these individual issues that the Supreme Court had to sort through. And they had to go through each and every one of them to ultimately get to this final result. Uh, one of the issues that they addressed had to do with whether there was actually a case or controversy. And in this case, the court ultimately ruled that controversy in this context means the kind of controversy that's fought out in court traditionally rather than any old kind of conflict. The hearsay was ultimately addressed in this case, and the court held that not all hearsay is inadmissible. And this is true. You know, people often misunderstand what hearsay is, first of all. People often think that hearsay is just any claim rather than tangible evidence, but that's just not true. Hearsay is an out-of-court statement that is being used to prove the truth of the matter asserted. And some people will say, well, he's accusing me of doing this. That's just hearsay. Well, it's not hearsay if the person is saying that they witnessed you do X, Y, or Z. That is eyewitness testimony. And eyewitness testimony is evidence. Now, we could argue as to what kind of weight should be afforded to eyewitness testimony and how credible or reliable it may be. But testimony absolutely is evidence. And the example I like to use for people who don't understand this, they say, well, you shouldn't be allowed to accuse somebody of something if they don't have it on tape or there are no other witnesses or there are no photographs. There's no other tangible evidence. This That's just not the way it works. Picture your grandmother's walking down a dark alley and somebody knocks her over the back of the head and does horrible, horrible things to her. When she wakes up and she contacts the police, they arrest somebody, and she says, that's the guy, and this is what he did to me, X, Y, or Z. 
Would it be fair if the police said, well, I'm sorry, ma'am, but you don't have any photographs, you don't have any video, so uh, we're not, there's nothing we could do here? Of course not. Her eyewitness testimony is, in fact, evidence, and there will be due process, and she'll be subject, grandma will be subject to cross-examination and things of that nature, and the defense may bring in expert witnesses about the reliability of eyewitness testimony and the physiological effects of critical incidents, the impact that might have on somebody's short-term memory. But testimony absolutely is evidence. You have some out-of-court statement, even if it's not eyewitness testimony, that are not hearsay. Why? Because they're not being used to prove the truth of the matter asserted. You could use out-of-court statements to prove a number of different things, whether it be the effect that it had on the listener, things of that nature. You also have exceptions to the rule against hearsay. And if uh, something falls under one of these exceptions, then it too will be admissible. You have excited utterance exceptions, something that somebody says in the heat of the moment, which frankly you could make an argument should not be admissible because the uh, impacts and the physiological effects in the aftermath of critical incidents, but that's what the rules are. And you have other reasons why testimony can be admitted as rule, as exceptions to the rule against hearsay, such as if the statement has an adverse impact on the person making that statement. It's a statement against their own interest. And the idea is, why would they make that statement against their own interest if ultimately it were not true and was not reliable? The rules against hearsay are meant to protect reliability and to promote reliability. And statements made by a party, uh, your opposing party, can ultimately be used as an exception to the rule against hearsay. And I wanted to talk beyond these legal issues a little bit about something Pastor Whitney brought up and what really created this whole mess in and of itself in the case that we're talking about. And I've often heard the phrase, it's not the crime, it's the cover-up. And supposedly, that phrase comes from this very incident. And it's absolutely true. Uh, we see this in a number of different instances. It could be somebody as simple as uh, as a Martha Stewart type figure who ultimately makes a statement and it's the statement that catches her on perjury rather than the crime itself. You see this in de- self-defense cases where somebody, for whatever reason, tries to do something foolish in the aftermath. I've heard far too many people talk about how if you if you have to defend yourself inside your home and the person lands outside your home to drag them back in or to put a knife in their hand or whatever, you hear these kinds of crazy things. Don't ever do any of that stuff because the fact of the matter is uh, the police are going to find out that you messed with that scene. And when they find out that you messed with that scene, number one, you may have just committed other crimes. And number two, your credibility for the underlying incident is instantly shot. They can't believe a word that comes out of your mouth because it has destroyed your credibility. So I think people need to understand that your best bet in these situations is to lawyer up and shut up. Invoke your rights. There's a reason why we have rights under the Fourth, the Fifth, and the Sixth Amendment, right? Why we have the we don't have to consent to any searches. Why we don't have to make any statements because the statements that you make in the aftermath of these things could end up incriminating you, even if you don't believe you've done anything wrong. Because as a matter of practice, the statements that you make in the aftermath of any situation could inadvertently hurt you. Maybe you say, oh, no, that couldn't have been me because on Tuesday I was playing board games with my family. Well, what if you go back 
back and look and you were actually playing board games with your family on Wednesday. Well, now you've told them something completely different. Were you trying to throw them off? These are the kinds of things we see come up. Or maybe you say something and it doesn't come out quite right the way you intended it. Or maybe they don't hear it quite the way you intended it or the way you even said it. And now you've got something that's being twisted and used against you. So invoke your Fifth Amendment right and of course invoke your Sixth Amendment right, which is your right to counsel. So don't consent to any searches, lawyer up and shut up. It is the cover up that tends to jam people up rather than the crime itself. <laughs> well, thank you, Mike. And perhaps that's why, you know, I, when I remember what I do about the, the Nixon administration, there was a whole lot of positives and people felt, you know, things are going well. And uh, But after all of this, you know, what did he, he earned the name uh, Tricky Dick, you know, mm. can't trust what he's saying. You know, kind of the, the, the George Bush statement, read my lips no new taxes and then whoop oh there's all the new taxes like well now we can't believe anything you say we can't trust you and so you're right it destroys trust if uh, if you engage in the cover-up uh, and so had Nixon just basically let the plumbers swing I mean they they're the ones that did this they committed the crime they should do the time and uh, not try to protect his administration from uh, from what these people who are part of his administration had done without his knowledge and without his permission but uh, yeah it's seems like he made it a huge blunder there but thank you for the advice for all of us that we could easily fall into the, the same thing and often i guess our thinking would be well wait a minute i'm innocent so talking shouldn't be any problem but i think you you're rightly pointing out now you may make some disastrous mistakes in what you say it's far better to have a have counsel to help you through the process of answering any of the questions that, that the police may pose to you yeah, absolutely good phil uh Pastor Dave, you uh, you mentioned the the fact that impeachment is is probably not uh, used as often as it should be, and unfortunately, as as you pointed out in the the case of Andrew Johnson and uh, 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 Donald Trump, definitely it was political. And in fact, you could you could almost stretch that to the uh, the case with with uh, uh, Clinton. Yeah, uh, Slick Willie, Slick Willie, Slick, right? Slick Willie. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, on the other hand, maybe maybe that's somewhat different. But the fact is that impeachment is a political process. It's not a judicial process. It's a political process. And it's it's interesting that in the case of Nixon, who was not impeached, but was in the process of being impeached, that uh, it was an individual who had in the, the election of 1964... Uh, against Johnson, he was he was uh, uh, the Republican contender, uh, Senator Barry Goldwater. Uh, it was Barry Goldwater who really caused Nixon to resign. Now, if you look at the details uh, leading up to Nixon's uh, resignation, there was a meeting which included uh, Goldwater and somebody from the House, a representative uh, from the House of Representatives, where the impeachment would have been initiated. And basically, it was Goldwater telling him that Republicans in the Senate would not support him. And uh, what was he really saying? At that point, Barry Goldwater was a highly respected individual, and he was speaking for the Senate. And the Senate was the one that would uh, actually convict. And if it had been uh, a matter of just uh, being impeached in the House, uh, Nixon was smart enough to know that, yeah, you could get through that. You know, a little messy, but you can get through that. But conviction is being the first president to be convicted. And he said, no way, I'm out of here. So it's, it's really interesting to see that 
that it took a man of extreme character, Barry Goldwater, to go against his party because Nixon was a Republican and Barry Goldwater was a Republican leader in the Senate. And he said, party doesn't matter in things like this. My country matters more. Mm, yeah, and that's a, that's what you call a, a statesman, you know, someone who really takes his oath of office seriously and is more concerned about following constitutional principles and following what's good for the country rather than a, a mere politician who's, you know, counting up, okay, is this going to get me more power? Is this going to get me more uh, more money? And will this get me reelected? Uh, so, yeah, kudos to, to Barry Goldwater for, for standing for the truth for that. But I guess you... Go ahead. Uh, and do you remember the way he was uh, he was defeated? And he was embarrassed, really, the way the way he was defeated in 1964. He was considered to be a, a right wing fanatic. Yes, this is <laughs> this is the way the Democrats framed Barry Goldwater as a right wing fanatic. Mm-hmm. Now, who picked up that that theme again later on? Wasn't it Hillary Clinton? Oh yes, yeah. A vast, vast right-wing conspiracy against her husband. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, I guess exactly. Monica was part of that vast right-wing conspiracy. Yeah, yep. <laughs> my. Well, I guess our founders designed impeachment to be a check against unconstitutional actions on the part of the president. Uh, but it, as we say, not one president has been removed. But there have been a number of uh, of just uh, justices and and judges removed. Uh, there was an attempt to impeach a senator, but it was determined. Wait a minute, you can't impeach a senator. There's a, there's a discipline process that's appropriate for dealing with those in Congress, and that's a kind of internal thing designed in our Constitution. And questionable if that's a very good way because you kind of have the uh, you know the fox keeping the hen house there. Uh, so is that uh, en- enough? But um, in the judicial branch, again, impeachment is the means by which judges can be removed from the bench. Uh, and there have been a few, even though no presidents have been removed, there have been a few federal judges that have been uh, removed by the process of impeachment with the trial in the Senate that, that follows that. But it's very few and far between. In fact, at, I think it was in the 1820s that um, before he died, that Thomas Jefferson said, impeachment was nothing but a scarecrow. You know, it's just this useless thing that sits out there in the field. It might scare a few birds here and there, but it really has no teeth in it. And he could see, and he was particularly at that time talking about judges who were acting unconstitutionally and no one was using the tool of impeachment to bring them uh, back from uh, from the, the actions they had taken to violate the Constitution. So it's, it's debatable. They built this check and balance in. It doesn't seem to have worked effectively, even though in this particular case, uh, U.S. v. Nixon, the Supreme Court did the right thing. And perhaps that would have set some presidents back a little to say, well, maybe I need to be more careful uh, in in handling my office and, and be uh, step more closely to the constitutional lines and adhere to those uh, that I have in the past. Yeah, I, th- I believe it was the, the first judge to be uh, impeached and convicted um, who was dead drunk on the bench. Yes. I mean, it's a pretty obvious case, you know, but beyond that, you you wonder even in the, the, well, certainly uh, in the judicial uh, branch of government, um, how many uh, how many justices on the Supreme Court alone have been guilty of uh, judgments that are absolutely counter 
to the the Constitution. Uh, and we it, talked about Judge Roberts, and you mentioned uh, that case a number of times. What he did was absolutely a violation of the Constitution uh, in the case regarding uh, Affordable Care Act. Uh, so, you know, those, this is one illustration where, wait a minute, there should have been an immediate response to the House of Representatives. Impeachment papers, uh, articles should have been drawn up against Roberts for what he did. And no, nobody in the, in the House was had the guts to do anything about it. Yeah, I believe the, uh, uh, the actual violations that that uh, uh, he was guilty of. Number one, a clear-cut uh, violation of Article 1, Section 7, which says that uh, any new revenue le- legislation must originate in the House. Well, the Affordable Care Act originated in the Senate. It was passed by the House and then signed immediately by Obama. <laughs> okay, so uh, that one doesn't fit. And of course, there's nothing in the Constitution that says that the uh, federal government has any uh, power whatsoever over health care. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you might really uh, draw the problem back to we the people. I guess you, we could say the problem begins by looking in the mirror because we the people have allowed or maybe in many cases desired the federal government to do things for us that it is never given any constitutional authority to do. So we've wanted them to create this uh, retirement plan they call Social Security, a plan that's now absolutely broken is is going to uh, one way or another either wreck the economy or not pay the seniors what they promised to pay them. I mean, there's no two ways about it. Social Security is broke. It's putting out more money every year than it's taking in in the supposed lockbox. Oh, what a joke that was. It was just filled with worthless IOUs from the government itself saying, oh yeah, we owe you this money. We're going to steal it and spend it on, you know, buying votes essentially with what they, what they did with that money. But it's gone. There's no money in that lockbox for the Social Security. So many, many programs that our federal government has entered into, you know, Affordable Care Act being another one. These were entered into in part because many, many, way too many Americans, perhaps not a majority, but way too many Americans wanted the federal government to do things that were outside the contract that we the people uh, made in creating our federal government outside the contract of our, our constitution. So the return to constitutional government really has to be in with we the people saying, if I wanted to benefit from the federal government in a way that's not permissible, according to the United States Constitution, as it was originally ratified, as, as it was originally understood, if it's outside that boundaries, I should give up my pet project and, and basically say, uh, I should not want the federal government to do for me that which is illegal, just like I should not want to hire some criminal to steal goods and put them in my house. I shouldn't want a criminal doing that. And I should not want to hire the federal government to, to be a, a, a mafia, essentially, in its actions towards we the people. Yeah, this is the difference between democracy and a republic. And, you know, it's it's kind of fascinating, but in a, in a horrible kind of way, that uh, presidents like uh, George W. Bush uh, talked about extending democracy to, uh, uh, to the Middle East. Well, maybe if they were trying to defeat them in some way and, you know, like infecting them with a virus, they would do that. But basically, the idea of a democracy uh, was something to be feared by the the uh, founding fathers. I mean, you, you could look through the the uh, uh, Federalist Papers, and I think there are five references to to uh, democracy there, and they're all negative. Uh, they're all by Madison, by the way. Uh, uh, in this case, I think Hamilton just decided to s- sit on the sidelines. But but Madison saw the situation very clearly, and he said, you know, uh, basically, if you have a pure democracy. 
uh, the people are going to vote for all you know that uh, their special interests should be paid for by other other people, and so it really comes down to the idea of uh, who is strong politically and who is closest politically, and who's got the money to buy the the uh, representatives in Congress and so forth. Now, Mike, you might give a, a, a argued defense for what you know the federal, uh, particularly the federal bench has done in terms of uh, protecting our God given right to keep and bear arms that's secured by the Constitution and. So tell us what your thoughts are in terms of this balance of power that, that we're struggling with. It's very difficult because when you leave all the power in the hands of the legislature and the executive and you don't have that check of the uh, the courts, then what happens is we're leaving the uh, elected officials to determine uh, what is constitutional. And unfortunately, what we've seen in practice is the legislature is going to pass anything and the executive is going to approve anything that they believe to be a good idea. We've we've lost all semblance of any kinds of uh, understanding of what the constitutional restrictions are and constitutional protections are. Uh, for Just forget about anything having to do with, for example, specific enumerated powers in Congress. We, we don't see any of that. So if we leave them off to just decide whatever is a good idea, I don't see how there's any point to having a constitution. Mm-hmm. Good point. Yeah. And uh, so the, the problem with what we have on the bench, uh, as, as Phil was pointing out, is we have uh, those who themselves are not willing to abide by the Constitution. So we, I, I see we got all three branches acting unconstitutionally. And the crisis for our Constitution is we now have the check and balance process that our founders designed that the states are supposed to then interpose. That is, they can protect the citizens of their own state from the overreach on the part of the federal government when all three branches collude together to violate the Constitution. But the states have been bought off through uh, money, basically, because the tax money is taken out of the citizens' pockets and and then uh, is returned to the state if the state will abide by all kinds of restrictions and all kinds of strings and control from the federal government. So the states wind up getting bought off uh, and bribed by the federal government to do the will of the federal government rather than to do uh, their constitutional duty to protect us from unconstitutional federal government. So then you're back to the last backstop, in a sense, in the design of our founders with, you know, the federal government acting out of control. The state government's supposed to protect us and interpose on us. And if that fails, then you're down to the county. And your local county really depends on the executive of your county, who is your sheriff. And if your sheriff is constitutional, then your sheriff will stand against state and federal tyrants and protect you uh, and establish a constitutional standard. You know, I, I have a problem uh, with that process, really. I, I don't think that the founders really thought it through completely. And uh, basically, I can accept the idea that, that all right, you, you form this court. And we have to recognize, by the way, that of the, the three branches, this is the only branch that is not uh, a representative of the people. I mean, you're, you don't vote for, for a uh, Supreme Court justice. Um, these are appointed by a president and, and they're approved in effect by, by the Senate of the uh, uh, United States. So I think the, the problem I have with this whole process is, uh, okay, I'll accept the fact that they can pass judgment on constitutional issues. 
but not as the final word. So where should the final word be? Well, let's look at how the contract was created. Uh, who were the parties to the contract? There were no uh, parties uh, involved from the federal government because the contract itself creates the federal government. So who were the, the parties involved in this? Well, originally it was the 13 colonies that became states. They are the parties to the contract. So it should be, let us say, a, a representative group of of the the states that should pass the final judgment on constitutional issues, I believe. And I think that, that in the case of uh, the Roberts decision in the Affordable Care Act, that that would have been a, a viable uh, check on the uh, the states, you know, if uh, check on the the uh, the opinion of the the uh, uh, Supreme Court. Um, and maybe it's it's a two thirds majority that is required or even a three fourths. But we have to have some way for the states to assert themselves uh, in this in this because they are the parties to the contract. The federal government is not a party to the, the Constitution of the United States. Mm. Good point. Yeah. And I, I, do, point. <laughs> I do know that there were some states that tried to push back on the Affordable Care Act and said, no, no, not in our state. But the problem was, again, what I see is that the states are all bribed by getting federal grants, federal money for roads and education and health care and all kinds of federal grants go to every state. And the states have become dependent on that money such that they, in a sense, cannot act against the federal government or resist unconstitutional things on the part of the federal government because then their financial situation will work out and, and, and they'll be bottom up. So it, it's a cycle that I, I guess is it's difficult to break until we break the funding issue. That is the federal government reaching into the pockets, into the checkbook of every American and taking money directly from them rather than the constitutional process, which was supposed to be the federal government sent a tax bill to each individual state and each individual state then would choose how to raise the funds that then it would send as a check uh, to the federal government. If you are, wild, again, oh, go ahead, please go ahead. Isn't it wild to consider that the states are uh, acting to our detriment, doing unconstitutional things simply because they're being bribed by the federal government with money that we don't even have? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the trillions and trillions that they're printing up out of thin air. Go ahead, Bill. <laughs> uh, that's all right. Continue on, please. Well, if, if we the people understood these principles and were able to uh, elect those who would stand on the principle, and that's that's the perhaps the difficult part, because a lot of times politicians speak one thing in the election or if they're, you know, newbies and then they go down to Washington and get very quickly corrupted or even go to our state capital and become uh, corrupted. Uh, but we continue to elect them because we believe, oh, they understood those principles, at least when we remember them uh, just getting started. Uh, and that corruption means that we often, I guess, need to simply replace those who are in office with those who will hold the constitutional principles. But of course, that can only happen if we, the people, understand those principles, can articulate those principles to our friends and family, to the folks at church, and and spread that message. And by the way, I encourage people to uh, the website of theamericanview.com. We have a number of courses on the Constitution. Also to the the podcast of this program, We the People, the Constitution Matters. Click the podcast because there's numerous lessons detail by detail through the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and subsequent amendments that can give you a thorough knowledge whereby you can help inform your fellow citizens. So this is We the People. The Constitution Matters coming to you over the free airways of WFYL. We're inviting you to join us next Friday morning at 8 a.m. as we continue to study the decent dozen.